Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. This is part two of a two-part crossover episode on what's wrong with Congress and how to fix it with Matt Robeson of the Beyond Politics podcast. Beyond Politics is a great podcast with two really knowledgeable hosts. There's Matt, who I already mentioned. He spent a decade working on Capitol Hill as a legislative director and chief of staff to three members of Congress. He's also worked as a senior advisor, campaign manager, and the consultant on several congressional races. His regular co-host is Paul Hodes, who served two terms as a United States congressman from New Hampshire's 2nd Congressional District. And if you like what we do on The Politics Guys, you should definitely check out Beyond Politics. In fact, that's how you'll be able to listen to part one of my conversation with Matt, which is where we talk about what we see as the main problems with Congress before we discuss how we think they can be, well, if not fixed, at least addressed in some meaningful way, which is what you'll hear in this episode. So if you haven't listened to part one, head over to Beyond Politics, do that, and then come back here for the rest. There's a link to Beyond Politics in the show notes, but you can also find them with a quick search in whatever podcast app you use. Can we start by stipulating the MVP that we need to look at this in terms of money, votes, and press? And I think all three of these are broken. We've touched a little bit on all of them. Which one, maybe we we get to the votes last, but I, I don't know. It's up to you. Which one would you like to start with? We've agreed we got to fix the outside incentives in order to fix the inside of the institutions. And we've got to address all three root causes, money, votes, and press. Where should we start? I Maybe I've been overly influenced by Larry Lessig out of the Harvard, who uh, he, he was a guest on, on, on the Politics Guys a couple of times. Too. Okay, so, you. Yeah. Oh, we got You know where yeah. I'm going with this, then, right? I, I mean, know where you're going. Do it. So his his argument is that money drives everything, and until we fix, it is the problem, the fundamental problem of our politics. And as long as we have a system that the money is very concentrated, there's a small, a tiny group of donors who are who are influence this system, then we're never going to fix anything else. Now, I would argue that he's maybe a little bit too focused on the money, but I think it's, I, I think fundamentally he's right. And if we can't figure out a way to, I don't think it's possible to get money out of politics. and He doesn't either. That just doesn't even make any sense to me. But I do think that there are ways to broaden that where the money comes from. Now, His solution, I think it's kind of an ingenious one, is basically a voucher system where every vote, if you register to vote, you get a voucher for, say, 50 or 100 dollars that you can donate to whichever candidate or party that you want. And this would come out of taxpayer funds, essentially. And it wouldn't be cheap, but, you know, like. Three billion or so a year, I think I ran the numbers and come on, what's that anymore? We're tossing billions around like crazy, right? And so the idea is that if you go from having this tiny percentage of people that are supporting campaigns to literally, you know, 
the, the vast majority of voters who have a say, well, then all of a sudden that changes the incentive structure of the people who are running. And then they have a lot more incentive to appeal to people who aren't those extremists, right? And to not only that, but to register a lot more voters on both sides, really, and get more people involved in the process. So it could be potentially a part of a virtuous cycle that you could start off with this. And really, I would argue for not all that much money in the larger scheme of things. So I think there's a lot to be said for uh, something along those lines. I'd like to get your take on that, too. I I think it's a brilliant solution. I think some kind of a, a matching fund or voucher system, the I mean, just to be very specific about what problem we're trying to solve here, it's that I gave you that statistic before. It's about the same for House Republicans. About half your money is coming from the contrib- large individual contributions, all right? About a quarter of your money, if you're in the House, it's a lot less if you're in the Senate, is coming from political action committees. And about 20% of your money is coming from small individual grassroots contributions. I think all of them are broken. I think all of them, all right these days, all of them are pushing you toward the extremes. The PACs tend to cluster you in terms of your policy choices. I'll just take an example. And again, I'll pick on my own side. I could easily pick on the Republicans. That would be fun too, but I'll pick on Democrats. If you work for a Democratic member of Congress, the biggest source of political action committee contributions for you is labor union political action committees. You dare not take a vote that disagrees with the stated position of the labor unions, because if you do, you will forego a significant, like I said, it's about a quarter of your money. They will withhold their money. They will punish you. They will hold you. And and listen, I I love unions. I'm pro-union. But like I said before, there are some middle ground areas where not everything that comes from the union perspective aligns with my personal point of view. Right. And I think most Americans would feel that way about about any issue. There is there is a tremendous amount of influence coming there. We've already talked about the fact that these large dollar individual donors tend to be activists. Um, and in some cases, they tend to be Harlan Crow and they're creepy billionaires with uh, unbelievable agendas and also the names of Marvel supervillains. Um, you know, small dollars. This would seem to be the most democratic source of funds. but. I can tell you from a fundraising perspective, and I've written fundraising emails, I've written fundraising letters. My, I'm not going to get into all of this, but trust me, I work with a lot of people in the fundraising business and politics, and they will tell you that voters are like any drug user who needs to keep increasing the dose in order to get an effect. You need to get your language purpler, more extreme, more provocative. Everyone has to be more outrageous. You need to give people the the hard stuff in order to get them to donate these days. What does that do to our political discourse? Think about how many fundraising emails you get. So anyway, that was my very long-winded way of saying, I think the problem here is that all of the sources of funds are pushing toward more extreme or more homogeneous directions, right, in the case of PACs. And that's what we're trying to break up. We're trying to make it so that your incentives as a politician are to do what you think is the right thing for your voters, to do 
to stick to the policy preferences that you enunciated in your campaigns as uninfluenced by the sources of your funds as possible. And I think Larry's suggestion is a good one. I think the problem is, of course, a practical political problem. Whenever I teach my, my course on Congress, I tell the students one of the most frustrating things is that reforming a lot of these systems requires members of Congress to do things that are likely to be against their own interests. And we, we like to say we believe in competition in this country, but, but I don't know that that's really the case. At least, you know, Congress is a two party duopoly and they don't necessarily, members of Congress who been successful by definition, they're in Congress. Why would they change a system that allows them to be reelected at like 90 something percent rates? There's there's no going back to incentives. Yes. What's their incentive? And absolutely, it's that Cold War mentality, right? They know the rules of the game. And this is what I talked to Steve Israel about. You should have him on your show. He's fascinating on this topic. He was on 60 Minutes about it. He's written extensively about it. You know, behind the scenes, talk to any current or recent former member of Congress. They hate the fundraising. They hate it. They hate the system as it exists, but they know how to play this game. They know the rules of this game and they have a million voices in their head from people who are like the current generation of people like me, staffers, operatives, campaign consultants, telling them, hey, it's a big unknown. If we change this, that's a, that's a game we don't know the rules to. We don't know what's going to happen. Having invested all of the time and effort and the personal slings and arrows that you've endured into the into what you've done with your career, do you want to change this system? But if you lock these like a kegger, if you put a key to a keg to the door underneath a keg and all the members of Congress inside the room and you said, change the system, they'd probably do it. They'd probably do it if they were really under duress. I just don't know how to create that duress. Exactly. Well, I, and I think in thinking about this an awful lot, the only thing that gives me, well, not the only thing, but one thing that gives me some hope is that at least some states have an initiative process that allows them in some ways to go around their legislature. Because it's the same problem in state legislatures, of course. And so in states that have some sort of a real robust initiative process, you can do things like, for instance, we haven't gotten to this, but I assume we will at some point, independent or nonpartisan redistricting commissions. Right. Which which I think. Are, Let's go there. Yeah. Let's go there. Let's go there. I mean. What raised the example of several members of Congress? Now I'm going to pick on a Republican. I would like to offer you the case of Mike Johnson, the current Speaker of the House. Let me say a caveat up front. I truly mean this. I do not want to cause any offense to people who have devout Christian beliefs. Being a devout Christian is great. I, I, I love that we have devout Christians in our country and kudos to you. The problem is that Mike Johnson is so fringe in his views that devout Christians cannot recognize what he believes in. He literally believes that human beings used to put saddles on dinosaurs and ride them, including onto Noah's Ark. I'm not making this up. I have videos about this on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube. Check it out. This is well-documented. This is real. I had Roger Sollenberg, the investigative journalist who broke the story about the fact that his financial dealings are insane, including the fact that he has never publicly reported having a bank account. 
his 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 political views, I won't belabor them here. Suffice it to say, they are on the fringe. And I I have to mention the fact that he was the congressional author of the legal brief that tried to overturn the 2020 election. How did he end up in Congress? Well, he had to win one election, basically. He he was basically gifted a seat in the state legislature where he served one term. And then he had to win one primary election in a super low turnout primary against several candidates who kind of all sounded like MAGA types. And he emerged. And since then, he's never had a competitive election. And now, four terms later, he's the Speaker of the House. How does this happen? And I offer to you the role of gerrymandering, both at the state and at the federal level. Am I off base, Mike? Well, I I think that's a big part of it. I mean, there are two components to this, right? One of them certainly is gerrymandering. The other component is is sort of a self-sorting type type of phenomenon as well. And political scientists go back and forth as to which one of these is more important. I, I guess my answer to this, based on the research that I've seen, is that Gerrymandering is not a a, a redistricting that gets rid of some of the most egregious political gerrymandering. It's not a cure-all, but it certainly helps at least at the margins. And honestly, at this point, I'll take some help at the margins because I think we're better served if we have more competitive districts, if we have districts that look like real things in the world and not these bizarre configurations designed by algorithms to be perfectly, you know, to get the most to get the most partisan outcomes, right? And there's also a legitimacy component as well. I mean, why should why should voters trust the system when they know when they when politicians are saying it's being manipulated to make sure we get the most the greatest possible number of Republicans or Democrats in our states? And the hell with what the partisan balance actually is. I mean, so for all those reasons, even though it can't fix everything, I think there's at least some reason to say, well, it's a lot better than what we have now. And even more important than that, it's something that a lot of states can do without going through their state legislators. And that's almost always a win because a lot of states have done it. And I think that's a that's a positive. Absolutely. Right. All caveats understood. There are no silver bullets in this discussion. Right. There are Probably about 20 things that we need to do to fix what's (laughs) broken with Congress and what's broken with politics. But the redistricting process is one of them. And look, I mean, like I said, I've worked exclusively for members of Congress from swing seats. It created a different set of incentives. I already gave you the example. We used to have to call out. Here's how we worked with Republicans. Here's what we agree with, with Republicans. Paul can tell you. We managed, by the way, to pass some significant pieces of legislation, and we did it because we teamed up with Republicans. We passed meaningful bills like real. There are people who have there are thousands of people who have jobs today because we were able to create an economic development commission for the Northeast, for the Ice Belt, which is an economically depressed area. And we did it because we worked with Republicans. Paul was able to pass a law that guaranteed that kids who got cancer couldn't get booted off their parents' health insurance. It got absorbed into the ACA. You know how we did that? By working with Republicans. Would we have done that if we weren't representing a swing seat? Maybe, maybe, but maybe not. And so the the need, the incentive to 
find some common ground and to show your voters that you are closer to that median voter, that is meaningful. We have to drag ourselves back there. And so, yeah, I totally agree. Let me throw one uh, another one at you that I think goes hand in hand. A lot of Democrats are really into rank choice voting. <laughs> I had I had an expert on the show about a year ago. And actually, if people want to look this up, it's a fascinating episode. I used to maintain another feed called Great Ideas. It's still up there. I just haven't updated it. I've just incorporated everything into Beyond Politics. The idea of Great Ideas was exactly that. I interviewed conservatives. I interviewed liberals, only policy experts. And the only focus was ideas. I just wanted to hear what are some good ideas, regardless of your political perspective, for fixing things that are broken in America. And this advocate made a great case for approval voting. Approval voting, if you haven't heard of it, is basically, it's the same effect as ranked choice voting, which you probably have heard of. It's just way simpler. You just basically, you vote, you could have a slate of 10 candidates, just say yes to all the ones that would be okay by you. And then you count up who got the most votes. And it has just, there's math involved, there's, forget all that. It has basically the same outcomes as ranked choice voting. Mike, what do you make as a political science guy? What do you make of those or other voting systems? How important are they? Are there any that you like in particular? Well, I do think that there's at least some evidence that suggests that ranked choice voting can help to moderate politics to get get us more moderate, moderate candidates, moderate, moderate winners. I think, though... You know, there are obviously a lot of arguments here, most of them from the right against us. Oh, it's so complex. To me, those arguments don't make a lot of sense. Because just ask voters in Maine. They seem to have figured it out. You know, it's not it's not rocket science here. Right. This is not this crazy sort of thing. The idea that, well, it's so hard to count these votes up and there are all these lists. No, they're not. It's a really straightforward thing that any reasonably intelligent person in about five minutes can understand as long as someone's not trying to obfuscate and try to make it sound like it's this crazy Rube Goldberg device of a thing. And so, again, I really think that there's a lot to be said for ranked choice voting, especially because we've seen examples of it in action. We know that voters can handle it. We know that it can work. And and even if you say, well, and political scientists argue back and forth at this point as to how much of a moderating effect it may or may not have. I think if you, in any instance, if you can give people a choice, can give them more of a choice than this stark black and white between, oh my God, I hate this guy, but I hate this guy even more. Well, then you're doing something positive for democracy. You're doing something positive for the legitimacy of the system. And why would we not want to do that? That to me, it's a, it's a no brainer. And I, I hope to see over time, a lot more ranked choice voting uh, rolled out as other states take a look at the examples of, you know, I think Maine particularly has been I think, right. successful at that. Yeah, Maine is that is one of the districts where I worked as a staffer. I worked for Mike Michaud, who was a member of Congress in that exact district that became the very first where the outcome was flipped because of the existence of ranked choice voting. Jared Golden is a Democrat. He's a conservative Democrat, kind of middle of the road Democrat, conservative by Democrats standards. And he beat Bruce Poliquin, but he would not have if it were traditional voting. There were third party votes. And due to the ranked choice voting system, once the votes were reallocated, Jared Golden remained the member of Congress. And What's important about that to me, just as a principle, 
as a bedrock principle is this clearly better represents the views of the voters. More human beings who cast votes would prefer to have Jared Golden than Bruce Poliquin. That is really fundamental to what democracy should be about or a republic should be about because Republicans like to remind us we're in a republic, not a democracy. And that's cool. I, you're right about that, my fellow Republicans. And so, you know, like that's, that's totally right. The only reason I raise approval voting is I agree with you. The basic objection to ranked choice voting is it's complicated. And I have to say, I give it a little bit of credence. I, in this day and age, when trust in voting has been subjected to such a frontal assault from the former president and people's trust in the voting system has been so degraded, something that is way simpler to understand where you just look with approval voting, it's just, you know, like Baranowski got 100 votes, Robeson got 90, Jones got 80. It's like, all right, Baranowski wins. And it has the same effect. And it's very clear. And there's not this whole black box kind of That's a good look point. to yeah. it. It's, yeah. it's just not a good look in this day and age. From a technical standpoint, I don't have the expertise to say whether you get results that are more aligned That's, with voters' intent. <laughs> yeah. Sound like a hanging chads kind of guy. More aligned with voters' intent with ranked choice voting than you do with approval voting. I think the difference is probably really, really marginal. So I give a slight edge to approval voting. But I think the, the broader point we're agreeing on here is, again, want to nudge people toward incentives to, you want to vote for a third party? Fine. Vote for a third party. It will not affect the outcome. You can still have Jared Golden over Bruce Poliquin. And who knows, from time to time, you may have those third parties. What, what do you make of the more exotic ideas out there like, well, we need, we need to, I mean, they're all, can I just say up front that I think these are all BS. I think these are all like these ideas of like, well, what we really need is a six party system and we need to move to a parliamentary democracy. It's like, great. These, these are fantastic. Fly me to the polling place in my flying car for that. That, oh, uh, you know, that, great idea. oh, that, don't even get me started. That drives me nuts. I've read, you probably have too, so many books on politics where they really do a great job of diagnosing the problem, whatever it is. And then that final chapter, that solutions problem, well, let's just have everyone love each other and be good and happy. And we'll do these 38 different things. And I found was like, what, what world are you living? What planet are you living at? Come on, man. So there are a lot of things that I think would be fantastic ideas. If we take a look at, for instance, Australia, where they have mandatory voting, it's not as scary as it sounds. They don't throw you in jail if you don't vote. But I, I remember we were talking about a class called Crazy Ideas about American politics. And one Oh, of, that's such a great class. Oh, I want to take your class. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, well, dude. Teach it again, <laughs> record it, put it out as a podcast. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, that would. I should do that. I should totally do that. But anyway, so, well, mandatory voting was one of these crazy ideas. And I pointed out, I said, I read a report from Australia's election commission, and it was a report from a few years ago saying they were really concerned about their, their low turnout and they maybe needed to do something because the turnout had dropped down to like 90.3%. I was like, are you kidding me? But, but. That's the sort of thing where I can see how that would be a great thing to implement, but it's not going to happen. And I, I, I wonder why you can make a case that, well, we talk about these things because things that seem 
crazy in our current environment. You go back 30 years, the idea of universe, any kind of, any kind of national healthcare, right? Any sort of thing that, that became the affordable care was, was just beyond the pale. But people kept on chipping away and pushing. And eventually we got something that, you know, half a loaf better than none. Maybe you can make a case for that. But some of this stuff is so far out there, like, let's have a parliamentary system or let's have mandatory voting. Why are you wasting your time on that? I'd rather you just be honest and say, I don't know, maybe we're kind of screwed. I would have a lot more, it's a lot more legitimate than just saying, well, let's do these crazy things that would require members of Congress, people in power to just do something completely against their own interests. So yeah, that, I, I feel very much like you. Right, I'm right, very right, passionate right. about No, you're better off just advising people to bend way the heck over, reach around and kiss their butt goodbye because there's no, yeah, there's no, it reminds me of that far side where you see two scientists at a blackboard with these really complicated formulae leading one to the next. And then right at the very end, it says, and then a miracle <laughs> yeah. occurs. And the other scientist is like, I see where you have a little bit of a problem here. Yeah. I mean, there's, Whenever I read an op-ed that's like, we need to break California into six states, and that way we would increase yeah. <laughs> the margin in the U.S. Senate. Great. Good luck with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Not going to happen. Unless, you know, the uh, Cascadian subluxion zone produces the tsunami that completely evaporates the West Coast. I shouldn't joke about that. That's That's a real thing. That's a real threat. All right. So we agree that solutions here have to be practical. We can't go the Australia route because we can't assess the same penalty they do there, which I believe is you get punched in the face by a wallaby. <laughs> you have to do things that are achievable in America. Let's talk about, we've talked about mostly the money. Let's talk press for just a couple minutes because boy, I could, I could do this all day. I could do this all day. Let's talk, let's talk press. All right. So the problem here, as I see it is I'm not, I don't have Fox derangement system uh, syndrome. Don't have what the political scientist Roy Teixeira calls the Fox News fallacy. I think Fox is horrible. I think their effect on America is subversive and insidious and just downright terrible. But I'm not like obsessed with Fox qua Fox. It's a bigger problem than that. I think the problem is that the sources of media are themselves, they create perverse incentives for politicians, that if you are a Republican politician, and I want to say this without making a value judgment, I'm just people respond to incentives. Your primary incentive is to try to appear on Fox, Newsmax, OANN, or some of the very influential podcast video shows out there, you know, that that make a difference so that you can create a viral video so that you can fundraise or so that you can spin that into more media appearances that raise your profile, that help you fundraise, that help you win your election. That is your incentive. For Democrats, it's a little different because you want to get mainstream media appearances. The mainstream media is, they do a lot of both sides-isms. It's, it's a weirder thing. You're more incentivized to build your own direct-to-consumer channel through social media. The problem there is that, as has been extensively documented, Twitter is not the real world or X or whatever the heck we call it, and that the people who talk about politics on social media are far more extreme in their views than the average Democrat, let alone the average American. And so to me, that's my diagnosis of the problem with the media. Am I right in your mind? Is there more? 
I would certainly agree. I, I would say it's, it's not just that the people who are on those platforms are that way, but the very nature of those platforms makes you more that way. There, there was a guy writing a long time ago, in the 80s, a long time ago now, Neil Postman, who wrote a fantastic book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And a lot of it was very prescient. This was, of course, in the TV age. But his argument kind of based, goes off of what Marshall McLuhan before him said is that the, the, the mediums that we use, they act on us. And I don't know about you, but whenever I've noticed that when I am on X, X makes me both angrier and dumber the longer I am on it. Just the very nature of it, because I'll see these things. There's only so, so certain things you can do in those, that small number of characters, right? And, and it's designed. That's the nature of that medium. And so this idea that that threads or blue sky or something is going to be different. It's not because that's not the nature of the medium. We we can't change that. You can't make a, a you can't have discourse on on X or Twitter or threads or any of those things. It's just not possible. And so that to me is one of the frustrating things because you combine that obviously with algorithms that drive more of that content to us. That's a problem for which I don't have a great solution. I remember there's one of these books that I that we just talked about that had the, these crazy solutions, right? Said, well, there should be more programming that's that's in depth and and thoughtful, and maybe you could have former members of Congress on and have panels and and I think that would be great. And twelve people would watch it, and so I mean, you know, it, it's hard to find that line, and I think we both struggle with this on our respective shows is you want to draw in enough of an audience to make a difference and be entertaining, but you also want to be substantive. And you know that the more substantive and in-depth and serious you are, the harder it's going to be to draw that big audience. And you take a look at, at whatever it's podcasts or anything else, the stuff that gets to huge numbers, it's the crazy stuff. And how, how do you how do you find that balance? That's really difficult. You know, it's like, I think you and I are doing important stuff. It's just very difficult for us to find that balance between entertainment value and uh, that kind of in-depth sort of getting people to really step back and really consider what the other side is saying. That's, that's challenging. Oh my gosh. What a great answer. I, let me start with the last part. I, this has been a personal frustration of mine that for a long time on beyond politics, I feel like I've been trying to operate a Michelin one-star restaurant next to a McDonald's and it's very hard. And you, I know have the same problem because you talk wonky stuff. You talk, you talk in the weeds, you talk about stuff with nuance and substance that matters that, as you said at the top of the show is not a shout fest. That's what I'm going for too. And it is frustrating because there are about 3.2 million podcasts on earth that are that are currently rated and you and i one of the reasons we we got connected is we we're in a similar kind of top percentage which is cool which is great but it's really really hard out there for the average consumer of podcasts to tell the difference and we're going for something more substantive that's the problem on social media you are so right that you know people could be into posts they could be into threads they could be at anyone at mastodon Maybe Wallaby is a thing. Maybe you and I should start that, the Australian thing. We'll call it Wallaby. You know, the incentives for content are not going to change. The algorithm isn't going to change. And, you know, look, look no further than the fact that Facebook invented 
the share button in 2009. Twitter responded with the retweet button in 2012. Ask yourself, when did things start to really go off the rails in American politics? I know that that's correlation, not causality. But there it is, folks. There it is. And so, look, I mean, once again, there are no silver bullet solutions here. And I am not a, a social media technology expert. I am very interested in the Section 230 reform. That, that was a discussion that was very hot after the Francis Houtkin testimony about Facebook, everything they knew about the destructive psychological effects, especially for teens, especially for teen girls, um, and uh, of using social media, of using Facebook, of using Instagram, and the idea of removing that, that protective shield of Congress taking that action, making the social media outlets more liable for the content, that's attractive to me. But look, I mean, at a very fundamental level, I don't have a problem with Congress stepping in more aggressively and saying, how about we force the social media companies to, to dial back the, the shares and the retweets? It's the virality that creates the incentive toward extreme content. You know, it's, it's the fact that that's the stuff that's most fun and gets most shared. Look, I run into this all the time. I've been, for the last year, I've been engaged with a, with a YouTube channel partner and putting more content on YouTube because video is a lot of where it's at these days. You know, this is going to be, we'll have pieces of this, maybe the whole darn thing up on YouTube. And look, I do stuff that's more partisan on YouTube. I do. And I try and be a little funnier. I try and be a little more tongue in cheek. I throw more barbs. And that's because I want people to see this stuff want people to consume it. I'm still trying to bring the substance. I'm still trying to bring the nuance, but I've got to blend it. And I try and do the same thing in audio. I try and keep it entertaining. Man, is it hard. So anyway, I would say that social media regulation is a piece of this. I'm not against the counterweight of more investment in nonprofit journalism. I've had a lot of ProPublica reporters on my show. They do incredible work. It's really important more investment in state and local news, which used to be and, and still could be more of a valuable news source so that democracy doesn't die in darkness or whatever WAPO says. I think all of things, those things are part of it, but there's no area more than the media where I think that there's no silver bullet. Yeah, it's it's really frustrating. I would argue, well, if there's one maybe grounds for optimism, at least a little bit of optimism, I think the sort of things that you and I and other, there are some other podcasts and, and outlets try to do is important because while once somebody's become radicalized, it's really difficult to reach them and pull them back. I would argue that there are, uh, there are a, a sizable group of people on both sides of the political spectrum who maybe have tendencies in that direction and they can be maybe encouraged to kind of pull back a little bit from it. So if we can save someone, if we can save even one, maybe not one person, but if we could save a dozen people, maybe that's worth it because at least we're not making the problem worse. And so I think there's something to be said for, for that sort of work. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, there are things that we can keep trying. We know they don't really work. Like we had the Dartmouth political science professor, Brendan Nyhan on the show talking about, you know, fact checking doesn't work. Turns out people, you know, the lie has a chance to get halfway around the world before the truth puts its pants on. It's also known as Brandolini's law. Can I say, I'll just say BS. The BS asymmetry principle, it's just 
it doesn't work. Okay. And so, you know, like we can try that fact checking, you know, trying to have credible voices. I mean, I do think it's the fracturing of the media obviously is a well-worn topic on shows like this. And it, it is hard. Look, I'm going to pat ourselves on the back a little bit. I think we have to not give up on what we're doing. I think we have to continue to offer people the substance, the better stuff, the Michelin one-star stuff. We can at least try to. I'm not saying that we're always the greatest quality and that we don't occasionally sink to, you know, the, the more sensationalist material, but I think we can try. Just, you're right. Media is the hardest. Media is absolutely the hardest. Look, the Dominion lawsuit is also a ray of hope. I got to say, I mean, using the legal system, civil liability to create sanctions, to, to give brushback pitches to Fox and some of these other folks. We've seen it with Alex Jones and, and the massive defamation liability that he now has. You know, reining in some of it. I'll that, take it. I mean, it, it, yeah, it's something. Certainly, maybe that just makes better liars out of people. But I'll, I'll, I'll take what I can get. And if you can get an Alex Jones, oh, well, you can't get him off the air. But you know, but but yeah, there's something there, and I think that that is important. And I would agree. You know, there, there's one thing I know where we're focusing on outside the institution, but there is one inside the institution thing I want to bring up. It's sort of a hobby horse of. One person I respect who knows an awful lot about Congress, a guy named Norm Ornstein. I've had him on the show. Okay. You may That's know who. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, but, but he, he believes one thing that might make a real difference is what he calls restoring the filibuster in the Senate. And I think mm. maybe there's, there's something. Let me explain what I mean by this is a, a lot of people, I'm sure most people who are listening to this understand what a filibuster is. But what a lot of people might not realize is that really since the 1970s, the filibuster is really what I call the fake filibuster. No one has to get up and talk like in Mr. Smith goes to Washington or anything like that. The rule was changed in the 70s because they realized, well, this is just grinding the Senate to a halt. We want a more efficient thing. And so basically you just have to just announce essentially that you're filibustering. We can move on to other things. But of course, that lowered the cost of filibustering to about zero. And now we see the number of filibusters just, just skyrocket. So it's actually become, talk about the law of unintended consequences, which basically, as you know, as most listeners know, I'm sure is that that means effectively for except for a few reconciliation type of things that a working majority in the Senate is 60 and good luck with that. Right. And so what Norm argues is that if we brought back the filibuster requiring that those who are seeking to continue debate because it's not debate would actually have to hold the floor. Well, that would still allow for that. Those people who say, well, it's very important that we have this, this minority protection. Well, you still have it, but that would mean that the minority couldn't just use it every single time. They would actually have to get out there and be on the floor and talk on germane topics. And so it wouldn't cut out their rights, but it would mean that you'd really have to work for. And I think there's, you know, something to be said for that. Is that likely? No, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's as crazy as just saying, well, just eliminate the filibuster. So I don't know that that's one thought I've heard inside the institution reform. And I wanted your take on that. Yeah. I, the number one thing that recommends that idea is that it follows what I'll call the wallaby principle. It's achievable. It's, it's something that you might conceivably get the Senate to agree to do. The other reforms, and Norm offered 
at this in the same breath, I think he wrote this in a WAPO op-ed or something like that, where he talked about restoring the talking filibuster. He offered some other potential solutions, and we talked about it on the show. The problem with the other ideas out there is it's hard to conceive of of senators agreeing to it's that same dynamic. It's how do we get from here to there? How do you go to an unknown system where you feel like ah, we're only two years away from, you know, being in the majority ourselves and then we don't want any of this anymore, you know, or why change a system where at least we know the rules of the game? Restoring, you know, that traditional form of the filibuster is achievable and it's something that, you know, it, it, getting from here to there and envisioning what that would be like is not that hard. That said, I kind of like some of the other ideas. I mean, my personal favorite was, you know, Norm may not have put this one forward. Some people have talked about lowering the threshold for the filibuster. I think that's a great one, but who's going to agree to that? Personal favorite version of that is having a floating threshold where the threshold for breaking the filibuster is whatever the amount of the majority is plus add a number, two three, four votes, whatever it is, meaning you have to have some bipartisanship. You don't have to have lots of bipartisanship. I mean, 60 is just, you know, getting 60% agreement on, on things is hard. That said, I do want to, one feature that I think people sort of know intuitively, but maybe don't think about is that the chambers truly are different. And that is where, you know, you were talking about changing the inside incentives and like these rules. The House is very, very different from the Senate. In the House, I've long quipped that there's really only one vote that you ca that you cast that matters. And it's it's the vote for speaker. If you have the majority, you run the show. Now, there are exceptions that prove the rule. See McCarthy, comma, sure heaven. <laughs> majority isn't yeah, always yeah. what it's cracked up to be. But basically, most of the time, that's true. The Senate is very different. See Tuberville, comma, Tommy, an individual senator or collection of senators can exercise more power. But again, all of these aspects of brokenness that we've seen in the House are also happening in the Senate. It's You don't have gangs anymore, the gang of 14. You don't have these cabals of centrist senators trying to work things out. We'll see what happens on this asylum question time we post this, maybe this will be solved. Like sometimes groups of senators can work things out, but you used to see this 15, 20 and more years ago where groups of senators would get together and say, we have enough of a concentration here out of the hundred or so that we can get something done. We can agree to something. Um, you don't see that anymore. So anything that nudges us back in the direction of you know, maybe you find a group that's in the middle, that's that's willing to form a working majority um, that crosses the party barrier, I think would be a good thing. I'm certainly in favor of, of the Ornstein reform. I just wish I could think of a way to push us practically yeah. a little bit further. Yeah, and that that's always my. I, mean, I love things like the like the problem solvers caucus and and group. I mean, there are groups that are trying to do that. The, the increasingly badly named problem solvers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I guess right. the do nothing caucus. Yeah, that will work out so well. But yeah, let, go ahead. Let me ask you one more because I we have now truly this is going to be epic. Breaking <laughs> into two ships, putting one in yours, one in mine. It'll it'll be okay. We're not going on so insanely long. But you know, we talked about money, votes, and press, and we covered money, and we covered 
press. We haven't directly covered votes, although I think a lot of our discussion about the voters was kind of wrapped up in the discussion of redistricting reform, independent redistricting commissions, getting rid of gerrymandering and ranked choice voting or other different voting systems. I do think that's a lot of it with the voters. But let me ask this. When it comes to dealing with the voters and the incentives that we create for our political candidates, for our political leaders, are there other things? Is the fault not in our stars, but in ourselves? Are there other things we can do to fix us or to give us different behaviors that would then create different behaviors in our politicians? Wow. <laughs> that's a, yeah, yeah. I guess we get, deep. I know we get Big the Cong- Americans. Good luck, Mike. <laughs> we get the Congress we deserve, right? For better or for worse, maybe yes. is the, the argument. Yes. And I, I don't know. I I have my I have my down days, my pessimistic days, where I think, well, we're just all doomed. You know, the, the country's gone to hell, and I might as well just move to I don't know, move to France or Are something. those days of the week that end in the letter Y. Pretty much, yeah, exactly, yeah. That's pretty much those. But but, but I also think that. The problem isn't with the voters per se. The problem maybe is with the people who are actually coming out to vote. And so things like I get, I get, I don't know about you, but I get more upset at my party oftentimes than I do at the, the other party. I'm still at the Clinton, the Clinton campaign in, in 2016. Don't even get me started. But, but I feel like a huge, if the, if Democrats were ever going to end the Senate filibuster, it should have been to pass meaningful federal level voting reform. They they chose not to do that. They didn't have the they didn't have enough centers to do that. But I think something like that 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 you know that HR uh, 1 back in a couple of congresses ago it went a little bit too far for me in some ways, but I think something fundamental like that really could maybe not reset, but I think getting making it easier for more people to vote uh, I, I try to be as charitable as I can to the other side, but I really do believe because I've heard them say, Republican officials say it, that we want, we don't want more people to vote in some areas. And I mean, I don't see you, you're, I'm not saying anything strange when I'm saying, well, Republicans, some Republicans are saying they're for suppressing the vote when they're saying, yes, we are for suppressing the vote in these areas. And so I feel like if we make it easier to vote while still maintaining vote security, which, by the way, is not nearly the issue that some people you're you're probably more likely to be struck by lightning than to have, you know, fraudulent voting affect a presidential election struck by voting twice, I would imagine. But that's the sort of thing where sometimes I feel like Democrats aren't aren't being strong enough, aren't, aren't pushing hard enough on these things, whereas Republicans, I feel like sometimes are pedal to the metal. Let's get it done. Let's, you know, I mean, but for John McCain, right, Obamacare would have been, you know, would have been repealed with no replacement in sight. That's the sort of crazy, let's just go for it sort of thing that I think Republicans are more likely to do for a variety of reasons. And I would like to see a little more, a little more of that in my party. I think it was a huge missed opportunity. And I would hope if the stars align again for something like that, I don't see that happening given what the Senate's going to look like for the next class. But I would hope that Democrats would would do something more along those lines. And I'm still really disappointed about that. So anyway, I think you nailed it. I think you nailed it. And I want to kind of put what you said together with 
something we talked about earlier, which is the nature of the electorate these days and kind of how we think about it from a campaign management perspective in terms of who's likely to turn out and how extreme they are and who are the persuadable voters. I wrote an article, oh boy, it's got to be three years ago at this point, where advance of the 2020 election, where I said, look, this was on Raw Story and Alternate. To invoke the Bill Clinton line in his State of the Union speech when he was talking of Social Security, and he said, save Social Security first. I said, if Democrats are elected, save democracy first. It's got to be the top priority. And they tried. They offered H.R. 1. The problem is they turned it into a freaking Christmas tree loaded down with every interest group's great, crazy idea that could have appeared in your course, Mike. And it was all this stuff that was not core to the enterprise. What did that do? It made it a big, fat, freaking target. Also, they did it as a message bill. There's the saying in Washington, do you want to have the bill or do you want to have the issue? Because if you want to pass a bill, you can actually pass a lot of bills. They actually proved that in the first two years of the Biden administration. They passed a lot of bills. And a lot of them were bipartisan. The semiconductor bill, pretty bipartisan. The infrastructure bill, it's called the bipartisan. You can pass bills if you don't make it messaging bill that's meant to be an issue for your base and not an actual piece of legislation. They took HR1 and they made it a messaging bill. They made it the most, like every wish list item for the last 20 years of eggheads, you know, and they made it a big fat target because they wanted the issue. If they had actually tried to save democracy first, and if they had actually said, look, Republicans, we call your bluff. You want voter ID? We agree. Let's have federal voter ID, but we're going to make it standards. Like, it doesn't have to be photo, right? Like, you know, we're going to make it standards that are achievable for the kinds of voters. that you're. There, there are actual agreement points that they could have had, and they could have saved democracy first. And that would have gotten to your point, which is, Bringing more voters into the process, shaping the electorate more toward not only what the people want, which tends to veer more toward, you know, my political preferences, my party, the Democrats, but also it would have put the onus on campaigns, more low information, less likely to turn out voters you have to reach out to and persuade that in itself, I think would be a positive for democracy and for the system. The other thing, and I will pick up on your occasional note of hope thing here. I've had David Pepper, the former Ohio Democratic Party chair on the show several times. He's written a book about this, Laboratories of Autocracy, talking about how the Republican takeover at the state level, which they engineered in 2010 with a $30 million investment, best money they ever spent, has had these incredible far-reaching consequences through through today, 13 years later. But the opposite of that is also true. It's much easier to create change at the state level. You were talking about doing this through direct voter action, through referenda. You can do that. They've successfully done that in a number of states, including in Ohio. You also have a greater opportunity to fix these state houses and to enact things at the state level that then eventually become critical mass at the federal level, or that just have their own weight in terms of policy impacts, democracy impacts on the American people. And so I think the opportunity exists 
at the state and local level. Also had Amanda Littman, the, the head of run for something on the show, talking about the massive gap, the vacuum that exists at the local level and the opportunity, therefore, for people to get involved and make a really profound difference in people's lives over these local offices that we never think about. So I think one thing that reformers should bear in mind when it comes to fixing Congress is not all the solutions have to do with a direct shot at Congress. You might do a bank shot that goes through the state level first, do an awful lot of good for an awful lot of people, and eventually move toward the kind of fixes that will make themselves felt in Congress. Yeah, I, I, I so thoroughly agree with that, and especially about the brilliance of the Republican plan to really build at that lowest level. And that's the sort of thing that takes that could take decades for or a decade or more for it to fully come to fruition. But it sure has. And not only that, but if you can approach those voters at that local level, you can approach them in a very real way where you can't. We have a congressional district with 800,000 people. That's where it doesn't. If you're a Democrat and you're actually talking to people for a local race, you can actually get them to understand you and maybe actually persuade them because there's nothing that's more powerful than that person, the person sort of thing that you have at the local level that you don't really have with Congress. And so I agree. Democrats have been far too focused on the big picture federal legislation sort of thing. And we really just really need to build up our bench and build up our, and understand that this is not the sort of thing that's fixed in a cycle or two. This is the sort of thing where you have to plan for generations down the line. And it's, it's a long, hard slog, but it's absolutely imperative and totally worth it. I couldn't agree more. Boy, you know what? I meant it when I said before, I could literally talk about this all day. <laughs> I'm feeling my shot clock going off in, yeah, in my head that so. some that somehow we have pushed this to the very, but absolutely fascinating conversation. All right. For, for my listeners, people who are coming at this from the beyond politics, I don't know how we're going to break this up. I don't know which end is going to go in which show, but I just want to urge people, come subscribe to Beyond Politics. Go subscribe to the Politics Guys, two shows that are trying to do our part, our small part, to figure out all the stuff that's broken and to fix it. Mike, it's been absolutely delightful to have the conversation with you. Oh, yeah, I've had a great time. All right. Thanks so much. And we'll, we'll see you on both shows. Hopefully, people, we will see you on both shows. <laughs> yes, definitely. We hope you enjoyed this special crossover episode of The Politics Guys. If you're not already a supporter of the podcast, we hope you'll consider becoming one because without your support, this wouldn't be possible. Politics Guy supporters get a bunch of benefits, including ad-free episodes, the full-length version of our midweek supporter show, access to our Politics Guys Discord group where you can interact with us and other listeners, and even the opportunity to listen in and comment as we record the show every week. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you'd like to support us on Venmo, we're at Politics Guys. You can also support the show through PayPal. All of our support links are in the show notes, as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And if you'd like to get that full length midweek show, but you're not in a position to financially support the podcast right now, that's not a problem. Just send me an email. I'm Mike at politicsguys.com and I will get that set up for you. And whether you're a supporter or not, we would really appreciate it if you could subscribe, rate and review us on whatever podcast app you use and share episodes on social media. We love hearing from you, and there are a lot of ways to get in touch with us. You can email us, mail at politicsguys.com. 
There's also that Discord channel I mentioned, which all of our supporters have access to, as well as Facebook and X. And you'll find links to them in the show notes. And finally, a very special thanks to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby.